Uh, welcome, everyone. I'm going to begin, and I'm so happy to uh, welcome everyone who's here. I've already received an extraordinarily uh, heuristic question before I even started, and um, obviously uh, this subject could draw some very uh, interested and uh, um, worthwhile reflections. I'm going to be talking about the origin of the ghost story, the supernatural ghost story in England and America, and I'm going to be talking about it in terms of <clears throat> anxiety and threat and the birth of the supernatural ghost story as one form of defense against threat, especially um, bad fathers. But I'm also going to talk about the supernatural ghost story as bearing an insight into the nature of a supernatural God whom we worship and the power of Satan and evil, which I personally believe is real. I'm not a liberal theologically. And uh, I, my experience has confirmed the existence of the devil powerfully in all kinds of ways as I see it and also the uh, power of, uh, of God to overcome the devil. So we're dealing with some pretty heavy material, hopefully some interesting material, and hopefully some very um, relevant material when all is said and done. But I'm going to start by giving a kind of a, of a survey of what in the world got would get anyone interested in such a thing. There are a lot of people who just avoid the genre of horror and ghosts and uh, The Exorcist 1977 and uh, all that kind of material. Uh, just avoid it because it's unpleasant or scary or difficult or just unnerving. And so there are many people I know who wouldn't touch this material with a 10-foot, 10-light-year pole. And I understand that. However, there are some sitting right in this room who live for it. Now, not everyone knows that you do, but there are some people right here who live for it. And it's probably the origin of the male fixation of adolescent young men on video games. It probably has something in common with the fixation that we have. You know, we, Mary and I didn't realize how powerful the urge of young adolescent males to be involved in video games until we discovered that all of our children in college and their roommates were in college playing video games eight to ten hours a day. Now that sounds inconceivable, but if any Anyone here ever went on a freshman uh, weekend or a parent's weekend in your child's early years and you were dealing with a young male child, you would have been shocked, as I was when I spent time in freshman dorms at Harvard. And the only thing that people were really interested in was certain kinds of, uh, of uh, warlords and uh, what's the big one that everybody got addicted to, the one that was on the Internet. No, that was earlier, that too. Well, anyway, they vary. But, um, so the subject is, is of interest, but let me, let me first, um, uh, is a little, I'm, I'm, I'm giving a kind of a broad, uh, net here, but let me start specifically. This genre of the supernatural ghost story, which is one of the greatest money-making publishing and movie, uh, um, themes in the history of entertainment, 
has its origin as far as All Saints Episcopal Church in Winter Park, very close to the history of this church. Now, this church was designed in 1940 and built in 1941 by Ralph Adams Cram, C-R-A-M. Ralph Adams Cram is a man who's largely forgotten now, but not completely, and he was so famous as an architect of Gothic architecture that he appeared on the cover of Time magazine during the Great Depression. He was on the cover of Time magazine. He was a national figure. And Ralph Adams Cram, who was based in New York, let me tell you what he did. He designed St. Thomas Fifth Avenue, the original plan for St. John the Divine in New York, the chapel at Sewanee, which many of you know about, the West Point Chapel, which is a place of great national pilgrimage in our country, Calvary Episcopal Church, which is the largest and most beautifully designed church in Pittsburgh, um, and um, uh, a great number of Presbyterian and Catholic cathedrals, churches, and mostly city um, uh, places of worship uh, of the highest quality, but with one particular interest. He was a Gothic architect. What had happened was he was come from an old Episcopal family up in New York and was dramatically converted in his early 20s when he visited Rome. He was an Episcopalian, but instead of becoming a Roman Catholic, he became an Anglo-Catholic. And an Anglo-Catholic was a school of thought in the Episcopal Church and the Church of England that arose in the 1850s by which Anglicans who were until that time thoroughly Protestant, thoroughly Protestant, you would no more have called a clergyman father such and such until, to tell you the truth, about 1980, with rare exceptions, then you would have flown to the moon. And the Church of England had rigid laws against any kind of genuflection or vestments or Catholic practice. And all that changed in connection with a kind of rebirth led by Cardinal Newman, You've heard of him, John Henry Newman, in the 1860s, but he was credible enough to realize that you couldn't really be a Catholic and an Anglican in the full line yards, and he converted, as you know, to Roman Catholicism and became Cardinal Newman. Now, um, Ralph Adams Cram, very young, was converted to Anglo-Catholicism and decided to give his entire career as an architect to building Anglo-Catholic Episcopal churches with a few Presbyterian and national churches thrown in. And if you look him up on the Internet, you will be your mind will be blown when you see the number of famous buildings that Ralph Adams Cram designed. And he was a highly engaged Episcopalian church layman. Now. What not everyone fully realizes is that he had another side. It wasn't lurid or scandalous, but it was interesting. He was absolutely, in his spare time, he adored writing ghost stories, horror stories. He did most of these in his youth, but he never, um, uh, he always uh, liked the fact that he'd done it, and he stayed close to the genre. By the way, what other very famous institution near to where we are sitting did Ralph Adams Cram design? 
Rollins College, specifically Knowles Chapel and the two old quadrangles of Rollins College. They were both designed as great achievements by Ralph Adams Cram. By the way, I sort of think they're being destroyed currently. I think the building program that's going on at Rollins is scandalous. I, when I finally realized the extent of it, and I did recently, because you can't walk over more than a third of the campus, I, campus, I just thought to myself, what would Ralph Adams Cram think, who gave us here in Winter Park one of the greatest and most serene, beautiful visions of a college campus? What would he think? Well, he'd probably want to get off the page of Time magazine. But Ralph Adams Cram uh, wrote a series of ghost stories, one of which is called, uh, the one you'll read, uh, is called The um, Dead Valley. <laughs> and it is a powerful story uh, that takes place in Sweden, in a Swedish forest of two young men who are going through a forest in a valley that has a sense of such complete hellish desolation with just the birds, the cackling of the crows, and the thudding and the quiet of reptiles treading over the uh, soil in the forest, that they completely go crazy over the sense of isolation, desolation of what's called the Dead Valley. Now, you may not want to read such a thing ever, but it is Ralph, if you woke him up in the middle of the night, and you say, what is your greatest achievement? He probably would have said, Rollins College and the Dead Valley. Now, um, this is fascinating because what what he, uh, people who are interested in supernatural ghost stories, and I'm going to explain a little bit more of what I mean, are usually people who are struggling to reconcile some kind of conflict in their life, which the ghost story or stories of the vanquishing of evil by good are a kind of symbolic substitute for. Let me repeat that. People who gravitate towards supernatural fiction or horror stories are often people who are grappling in their own lives with some sense of threat, which the story is able to kind of symbolically serve as a substitute and a kind of purgation, like ancient Greek drama. You've heard the word catharsis, you know, when you were in college. You heard the word catharsis. You would go and through Agamemnon's being murdered by Clytemnestra. And if you had a bad marriage by the virtue, virtue of the fact that she murdered him in the bath, you might not murder your own husband in the bath because you had sort of come through the feelings that would normally motivate a wife to murder her husband in the bath. Um, you must not know me <laughs> because I, I'm, I'm saying this to get a kind of a cool this all down now. Um, I want to read the best quote on the subject. And then I'm going to go through a list of the the great uh, writers of the supernatural ghost story. And remember, it all started because All Saints Church was designed and built by a man whose profound interest in the Gothic had to do with the sense that in Gothic Christianity, certain forms of evil were vanquished through the power of the cross. That is Cram's interest. He's not interested as a dilettante or an esthete 
in Gothic architecture. He builds All Saints Church as part of a lifelong professional program of trying to make it possible for people to banish some of the demons that they feel through a direct encounter with Christian symbolism of the cross and the crucifix. Has anyone here been recently to St. Thomas Episcopal Church, Fifth Avenue? Well, you've all been there at some point in your life. It's at 53rd and 5th Avenue. It's open all the time, and it is an astonishing performance of Christian iconography, serenity, resurrected life, and um, the presence of God in the center of a city that is otherwise overwhelming. And it is entirely the, the child of the man who designed this parish. Now, the best um, quote on the subject, and then I'll give you several examples, is from a writer named Michael Moorcock. Now, um, if I mention the name Michael Moorcock uh, among, uh, say, the people that um, visit comic book stores, how many malls, mini malls in Orlando have a comic book store next to the Nails Place? And maybe um, a, a Vietnamese restaurant. How many malls have a comic book shop? Ninety percent of them. Just that's easy to, to verify. Ninety percent of them have a comic book shop. And if you go inside the comic book shop, there'll be a lot of sort of troubled thirty to forty year old single men who congregate there to have a shared experience over some substitutive form of the vanquishing of threat in their own lives. Now it's unsuccessful if you look at them and talk to them, but it's well intentioned. No, I just just go and spend time. And if you, if I suddenly am in the comic book shop in Winter Garden where we live or in Maitland or, uh, in, uh, just in, uh, just outside of, uh, in, uh, uh, just outside of Winter Park and instead of fire, I shout, Michael Moorcock, the entire place will stand to attention because he is the, he is the single most famous English writer of sci-fi fantasy who's currently still alive. And in his preface, to uh, 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 compilation of great tales of terror and the supernatural, Michael Moorcock wrote in 1996 the following. The problem is, of course, how to recognize the devil. And that, too, is where the best writers have always succeeded wonderfully. Kipling, Saki, Thomas Hardy, Henry James... E.F. Benson, Algernon Blackwood, and Arthur Machen, and so many more, have frequently offered us a profound and perfect allegory of good and evil, which occasionally has almost unbearable implications. He continues to write this. While rarely discussed, the power of the Protestant church is expressed in even the highest and most Catholic of English language writers. It is the Protestant church which provides so many of the writers with their imagery, their language, the resonance and tension of their stories. Whether you accept their beliefs or not, you can appreciate their enduring qualities and understand that those tensions are created by fundamental moral arguments. The battle between good and evil, 
the struggle between the conflicting philosophies of law and chaos, unchecked greed versus heroic altruism, and the struggles and confusion of the independent conscious. These stories alone address the fundamental contradictions in the human psyche. You could say that supernatural ghost stories, the tradition, is a kind of living evocation in literature of Romans chapter 7. I do not know why I do the things I do, and the things that I do, I do not understand. I wish I could do what I want, but I don't seem to be able to, and I do the very things which I don't want. Wretched man that I am, St. Paul writes, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, these stories are all um, relevant to that commentary. Now, I'm going to speak now about 10 minutes. I'm going to list some of these guys and explain to you what their fundamental problem was. And this is a problem that will haunt our rector and possibly his wife. It's haunted me for many years, but we seem to be out of it. And anyone who's either the child of a minister or pastor or has children and is a minister or pastor will be able to immediately identify. Let me tell you about some of these great men. The most famous one, believe it or not, was named Montague Rhodes James, M.R. James. And this is a uh, simply a, a, a compilation of essays about Montague Rhodes James, because M.R. James was an extremely famous and prolific student of the New Testament and scholar at King's College in Cambridge. He translated the New Testament Apocrypha, first and only. He was also very sort of easy with upper-class people. And before he died, he became the provost of Eton, which is like the very highest possible job you could have, the provost of Eton. And um, But what he most loved to do is go home at night. He was a single man and write supernatural ghost stories, almost all of which have been made into movies. I'll give you a list. Uh, but almost all of them are famous movies, but that were given different titles. And the BBC has filmed at least four times every single one of his stories. And this is just one of maybe 20 BBC editions of the stories of M.R. James that have been filmed in British television. But what people don't realize, and he all had stories about uh, medieval and uh, supernatural terrors that were to be found in churches, ruined abbeys, or buried treasure on the coast of Norfolk, or um, uh, surprising um, prayer books that had demonic properties, uh, believe it or not. And um, he is literally now the most famous of all 19th and early 20th century writers. And were he living today, he would be the wealthiest man. Uh, he would be as wealthy as Stephen King. Now, what they don't realize, however, is that M.R. James's father was a clergyman. He was an evangelical clergyman, Church of England evangelical. That means low church. His father was an emphatic low church vicar in Suffolk. But his father was a good, good man. His father was not a terror. And M.R. James grew up to be a low church evangelical Anglican scholar. For example, he refused to let the dream of Gerontius 
ever be performed at Eton, which may not mean a lot to you, but it meant that he had convictions. He didn't want some of them high church uh, operas being performed. Uh, some of those high church operas. And M.R. James, um, but, but he was a man who had grown up in the parsonage. He was completely surrounded uh, by uh, evangelical Church of England religion. And he didn't become a clergyman, but he brought these emphases about good and evil. If you know who J.C. Ryle was... Well, he was a, a, a the Bishop of Liverpool, very famous low church bishop. And uh, M.R. James's dad was the best friend of uh, J.C. Ryle. But instead of throwing it all over, he used some of his religious experience to uh, to uh, produce these stories about evil and good in place of churches. And the one you have to read, go home and, and find it, is called An Episode of Cathedral History. That's the, the great one. That's the introductory one, an episode of cathedral history. But we come to J. Sheridan Lefanu. Who's ever heard of him? Well, there are certain places, if I mentioned, if I said J. Sheridan Lefanu, and all of you would jump to attention. He was an Irish, an Anglo-Irish Protestant writer in the early 19th century who wrote ghost stories, and uh, his father, of course, was a low-church Anglican vicar, and he grew up in all this, and Sheridan Lefanu's um, great purpose in life was to understand evil and good in terms of his supernatural ghost stories. He wrote one about lesbian vampires. <laughs> he didn't use that word, but that's what it was about, called Carmilla, which has been made about 19 times into movies and television shows. Take my word for it. Um, can you imagine if you were married to someone like myself? Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, you're looking at a person for whom Jesus Christ right now has tears in his eyes. Um, but J. Sheridan Lefanu uh, was a man of great depth and of great refinement who wrote some of the greatest ghost stories, again, trying to exorcise his... Um, his uh, his demons, but in a positive way, because he was a real Christian. Now, does everyone know who um, Henry James was? Henry James, uh, now a, a, a well-known American expatriate writer, who wrote, what did he write? Ambassadors. What? Ambassadors. The Ambassadors, right. What else? Washington Square. What else? They've all, they're very big now in Hollywood. Everybody loves, uh, uh, loves his, uh, his uh, stories because they appeal to women and men. They're, they're just, they seem to be profound. They're not girly, but at the same time, they deal with issues that seem to be of interest to some women. And so um, Henry James uh, happened to be the brother of William James, who is the most regarded philosopher religion in America, right? You go to Harvard, and I was there, and I was a philosophy co-major, and you would go to William James Hall. Well, what people don't realize is that their father was Henry, was William James, who was the wealthiest man in America. Their father was the wealthiest man in America in about 1815, but he became a Swedenborgian. Swedenborgian, I'm giving you a lot of information. Swedenborgianism was a kind of Christian, non-heretical, but a Christian emphasis from the Scandinavia with a lot of interest in where we go when we die. And Emanuel Swedenborg, many people became Swedenborgians in this country. And the most famous of them was the richest man in America who took his children to Switzerland to be educated in 1840. Think about that. And... 
He himself gave up everything and was a full-time Swedenborgian evangelist. People would say, uh-oh, look who's coming in the room. But we have to be nice, honey. He's worth $20 million, and it's only and it's 1826. Um, but Henry James, in his own psychosexual um, sort of uh, um, integration of his feelings about himself and his life, and William James, in his profound understanding of Christianity, and their daughter, Alice, sister Alice, who is a brilliant woman, they spent their entire lives working out their father's extremely severe but sincere religion. So none of these people became atheists. We're only going to get to one atheist. In other words, they were the children of clergy, but they survived. Now, now you might be the child of a clergy person who hasn't survived. It's possible. They're all over the place. Matter of fact, there are millions of them. Now, another one. Algernon Blackwood. Algernon Blackwood was an Englishman. Almost all of his stories have now been made into movies and television shows. And he was a, an odd-looking, strange sort of theosophist. Theosophist. Who was sort of a New Age person long before New Age was a word. And he wrote in the uh, 1910s, 20s, and 30s his most famous story being called The Wendigo. But Algernon Blackwood's stories are so powerfully the study of the conflict of evil and good in the north woods of Alaska or in upstate New York or in on a train in southern France. They are mind-blowingly powerful. And he was um, religious but more of a theosophist. But what do you think his father did? He was a clergyman. Algernon Blackwood was born of an extremely wealthy aristocratic family, extremely wealthy aristocratic family. His father was considered the most handsome, young, desirable male in London society in the 1850s. His father was overwhelmingly converted as a young man to something called Sandemanianism. Let's see, aren't you glad you came? Sandemanianism is a form of Scottish Presbyterianism that if Scottish Presbyterianism damned seven-tenths of the human race by predestination, Sandemanianism damned the other two, 20%. It was an extremely severe form of Scottish Calvinism to the max Mary, who was the famous physicist, most famous physicist of all time, who was a Sandemanian? It'll come back to me. He, 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 as soon as I mention his name, you'll say, he was a Sandemanian? And I'll say, yes. Uh, it's like finding out that, um, you know, Einstein really was a Mormon. It's that a bigger thing. But Blackwood, Blackwood um, grew up in Sandemanianism, which was extreme. And yet because his father was a fabulously sincere man of refinement, conviction, and apparently was a good father. Blackwood rejected the Sandemanianism, but he was always a man who believed in the power of the divine presence of God to overcome uh, evil. And his books, his stories are dynamite. Haven't finished. My personal favorite is Arthur Machen. 
Arthur Machen wrote a story called The White People. Don't let that throw you off. It's not at all what it seems. Um, Arthur Machen was uh, a writer of very profound and somewhat Freudian stories about demons that would possess lovely men and women and force them to do terrible, terrible things until they were vanquished, usually by an all-knowing Christian priest type who wasn't a priest. One of the reasons I don't wear my collar when I come to All Saints, I want to be thought as a priest type, but not necessarily a priest, so they'll hire me to fight these kinds of demons. But (laughs) wouldn't you know that Arthur Machen's father, guess what, was a Church of England vicar, but he was a high church Episcopal vicar. He would have been glad to be called Father Machen. He was an early high church Welsh vicar, and Arthur Machen remained all his life a high church Anglican communicating person who wrote horrifying ghost stories. But the one you have to read, it's absolutely incumbent upon you to read it. I'm just saying that, but you all do it. It's called The Great Return. And in this amazing story, he's a Catholic Anglican. So he believes that the Holy Grail, the literal Holy Grail, is is of great and powerful significance. And in his story called The Great Return, the Holy Grail travels spiritually over land and sea and lands near Carnarvon, Wales, where it is first recognized by a low church evangelical Anglican vicar. Now that right there. Machen is a man of such broad spirituality that he knows religion wherever he finds it. He doesn't care that the man is low church and he is high church. It's the low church vicar that realizes that the presence of Christ has come supernaturally into the parish with this kind of levitating chalice. And the low church vicar starts speaking in tongues. And so they all believe he's gone back to the Latin mass. But he's speaking in tongues. And he follows it. This literally happens up the coast of Wales by Radnor and those places where you've been. And he gets to the middle coast and it kind of drifts over. Are you ready? To a Pentecostal Methodist chapel. And all, because that's a Methodist region in those days of the world, that part of Wales, everybody was a Methodist. All the Welsh people who are very religious gather in the chapel on their knees to worship the returned chalice, last supper, the divine mystery of the medieval world. Now, isn't that fabulous? He is so broad in his understanding of Christianity that he has Methodists worshiping the most high church possible doctrine of transubstantiation. So read The Great Return. I'm not quite finished. I will finish on time. I'm going to, women, you'll say, well, aren't there any women who wrote these stories? Well, the answer is very few. For some reason, it wasn't part. Women, well, obviously, you think of uh, Charlotte Bronte, right? And Wuthering, uh, Wuthering Heights, Emily Bronte, there's a lot of ghosts in that. A lot of religion, and their father was a Anglican clergyman. <laughs> um, but the one I would, I would always want to recommend, Edith Wharton, who went to Grace Church, New York City. She was a communicant, these lovely people, Stephen, uh, are. She was a communicant at Grace Church, New York City, and she wrote some of the most profound ghost stories of the 20th, uh, 19th century, the most best one of which is called Afterward by Edith Wharton. And uh, there I could list the others in addition to the Brontes, but I'm going to talk to you about just two others. H. Russell Wakefield 
who nobody's ever heard of, but he was brilliant. He, unfortunately, his father was the Bishop of Birmingham. Low church, because Birmingham was always a low church diocese, but uh, he was a Lord Bishop. I mean, he was very gators, you know, uh, that kind of bishop. His father was an imposing figure, and Wakefield decided to give his entire life's energy as a young man to write horrifying um, ghost stories, one of which uh, deals with the question of homosexuality in a way that is so extraordinarily ahead of its time and powerfully um, elucidatory. I cannot tell you how powerful it is. And um, the uh, last one I want to uh, mention, hang on, oh, E.F. Benson. Now, have you ever heard of something called Map and Lucia? Well, if you follow Masterpiece Theater, which used to be a big thing, they used to show these things at 9 o'clock on a Sunday from the BBC. Well, everything that E.F. Benson ever wrote, some of which were a little bit on the vulgar side, uh, a little bit uh, for 1910, and um, detective stories, and E.F. Benson's material, Edward Frederick Benson's, uh, has been countlessly done in English detective shows. Go to Barnes & Noble, right over here, right, on Bunby or whatever it is, go to Barnes & Noble, and under the English mysteries, you will unknowingly be faced with probably about 10 DVDs by E.F. Benson stories. But E.F. Benson wrote some of the greatest stories about the battle between good and evil in Anglican churches that have ever been written. You can get them. They're called The Ghost Stories of E.F. Benson. Now, his brother was a Roman Catholic priest who also wrote ghost stories, and their sister was an Egyptologist who went so crazy at the end of her life that she assaulted her mother physically and had to be taken away. And you just didn't do that in 1912 London. Now, does anyone know who the father of the Bensons was? He happened to be the Archbishop of Canterbury known as Frederick Benson. And so you have one guy writing ghost stories and mystery stories his entire life. One child becomes a Roman Catholic priest and um, scandalizes the English-speaking world, but guess what he does in his spare time? Writes ghost stories. And they have a sister who becomes a specialist in Egyptian mummies. Now, if you know anything about Edward E.F., the father, he was a difficult person. You would not have wanted him as your father. He was tough, very unforgiving, very political, very Machiavellian, the kind of bishop that we have still way too many of, very worldly, very class conscious, downright mean, believing that he was doing well. And he produced three absolute terrors. Well, have you had enough? We're going to close now, um, and I just want to uh, say that these uh, little people from Henry James to Ralph Adams Cram, our own, to Machen, to M.R. James, to Benson, to Blackwood, um, all of these people, and I could give you 20 more. Right now, I have 20 more who are just not quite as available on the Internet. These were people who, because of highly immersed Christian backgrounds were dealing with the reality of their lives in Christian terms, many of them in very um, redemptive fashion in which the evil was always almost vanquished by the power of the blood of Christ specifically. And they point to the fact that these men, because they had hard lives as children, were probably in touch with an element of religion that we sometimes lose which is the miraculous, which wasn't Russell talking about. Could you believe that sermon? Whoa, powerful. The, 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 the miraculous, 
the powerful, the life-changing, and also the vitiating, the tempting, the suicide-making, and the depressing. And in these stories, you see symbolic, substitutive actings out of the most powerful things that you deal with while you're asleep and at times while you're awake. Thank you so much. Sorry? Well, uh, the most famous one is called Curse of the Demon. It was made in 1956 with Dana Andrews, and uh, it's on uh, TCM constantly. And uh, the other one that is most famous of him is called A Whistle and I Will Come to You, Lad, about two rather silly English academics who unearth in the amateur archaeological excavation a um, horrible demonic terror that 12th century monks had buried near Lowestoft in Norfolk. And then there's one called Count Magnus, and there's one called the Uncommon Prayer Book, and uh, you, the, the list is here. But this is only a small fraction. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Yes, where? where uh, oh, yes, uh, he was. Um, it was near Barry St. Edmunds. Uh, I want to say I can't give you the exact. It's easy to find out. Well, it was right there. It was b- about one of those villages. I know exactly where you mean. <laughs> yes. I used to live in Rosson. That's why I was asking, because I thought it might have been Framingham. Well, it is Framingham. Uh, not Framingham, but the other one. Anyway, we've, we've gone to all his parishes, the, the, the guy. They're wonderful. We've actually been. Mary and I make a... Wouldn't you be, love to be married to a person who wanted to spend his vacation taking you to stories where ghost story writers had grown up? I mean, to parishes where ghost stories had grown I mean, that's a little bit of a sideline. And I'm married to a gardener, so I always had to find out that there was a garden nearby. Um, but... But but I can give you a list. It's a long list. It's a long and fascinating list. Yes. In your practice, you said that there was something along your theological journey that you had discerned that the, the satanic relevance to Christ. Can you share what that is? Well, I talk about it sometimes. I've had a couple of uh, of very um, marked um, spiritual visions, if I may call it that. And on the twenty. Um, uh, uh, 7th of February 2018 at a church in Orlando, but not this one, just outside Orlando, I had an, a direct um, uh, vision of God uh, as uh, like in the great return, as, as uh, direct as you may be appearing to me. I'm just talking about me. I had a direct uh, vision of God uh, as a person speaking directly to me. And I'll bet you some people here can identify with things of that nature in your own way. Um, uh, Mary? Oh, that wasn't Mary. Somebody raised their hand. What, Mary? My childhood? Well, at one point when I was going through some, what, is, what do we call this? We used to call it human relations work, but the word for it really is psychoanalysis. Um, and at an early stage in my life, I, uh, I was aware that um, I had a tremendous gravitation as an eight-year-old and nine-year-old to horror movies. It exists. Um, and when I was in the 50s, a huge uh, attraction. And... Um, it was pointed out to me later by a very gifted uh, English psychoanalyst who knew my father, who was a well-known person in his day, but who was never home, and who was also an alcoholic. 
So on the one hand, I had a father who was always away on business on the one hand. And when he was home, he was uh, just drink drunk all the time. But I didn't know that because you don't know it when you're little. And he said, well, he said, you're really trying to work out the Count Dracula father. <laughs> I said, the Count Dracula father? That sounds pretentious. That sounds worked up. That sounds like, what are you talking about? That's just a metaphor. But the more I thought about it. I don't know if you, anybody can identify a father who on the one hand wasn't there, but on the other hand, if you don't go to Harvard and if you don't get summa cum laude and if you don't get your Ph.D. by the time you're 21, you might as well have never been born. Now, I'm, I don't know if any of you have ever had fathers in your own way who might have brought and it can be men and women. I know a woman, a wonderful woman, whose father was a senior partner at a major firm in New York City, but um, she was the, per- the person on whom the light shed, the father, and he basically made it clear to her that unless she became a senior partner of a so-called white shoe Wall Street law firm soon and did everything that he had done and better, she might as well have never been born. She was so gifted that she did it. Have you ever heard someone say, you know, I did everything I was supposed to do, but... I haven't been very happy. <laughs> Anyone ever said that to you? Or have you ever thought that? Maybe one more. Mary, did that help? <laughs> no. She said that's what... Oh, that's what motivated these writers. Yeah, and, and boys. There's a wonderful movie called Super A. Wonderful movie about boys. It affected Steven Spielberg more than any movie that was ever made. Yeah. You must see Super 8. It's about an, a young boy who's dealing with the death of his mother and a broken relationship with his father, and suddenly an outer space monster lands in their town, and he loves horror movies. <laughs> and through the grace of God, he is able to find resources to defeat through love, believe it or not, this extraordinary force who is simply in a way the embodiment outside him of profound losses within him. And the greatness of these stories, whether you accept the premises or not, is that these were men who were working out as best they could the threat of an overly demanding and critical parent. And usually in these cases, it was a dad, I have to say. Um, we're going to end. It's time to go to church for the next thing. I did want to draw attention to the um, the, the rector is wearing the first seersucker jacket I've yet seen this season. And uh, I would want to say a very strong congratulations to him for his foresight. Um, I'm going to say a little prayer. Uh, dear God, wherever this has uh, impacted us, wherever we can uh, go back to our own childhoods and uh, undo some of these ghosts that haunt us, wherever we need healing because of overly demanding performance-oriented parents. They didn't mean it that way, but that's how we heard it. Give us relief and hope and uh, diagnosis and therapy in the truest divine sense. And then in your mercy, give us resurrection, joy, and peace. For Jesus' sake, amen.